Hey everyone, it's Tom Hoare. Welcome back to the BNY Mellon Perspectives podcast series, where we bring you the conversations that are shaping the financial services industry and the world. We've got a really great discussion for you today. Today's episode is part one of two parts, and it features a conversation between two amazing leaders. The first is Robin Vince, our very own vice chair and CEO of BNY Mellon's global market infrastructure business. Robin has a really fascinating conversation with another great leader, Rosie Rios. For those of you that don't know Rosie, she's fascinating. She was the longest serving official in the Treasury Department during the administration of Barack Obama, where she served as the Treasurer of the United States. And she's a really dynamic and interesting leader. She's done everything from being at the forefront of the push to place women on our national currency, to more recently, serving as a co-panelist alongside Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak in a reality television show that you're gonna get to hear about. What I think you might find most interesting in part one of this two-part series is really their focus on moments of economic challenge and recovery, including the one that we're currently living through. It's particularly interesting because Rosie served on both the 2008 presidential transition between the Bush and Obama administrations, and more recently, the Biden Treasury transition team. And she looks at our current recovery through the lenses of those experiences, and Robin brings his own perspective from service and senior leadership roles at two of the world's largest banks during the same periods. So I think you're gonna find this a really interesting and timely conversation between two great leaders. Now, a quick pitch. Rosie is one of the speakers at our upcoming BNY Mellon Pershing's Insight 2021 conference, and that's coming up in June. Insight is the largest annual conference hosted by BNY Mellon. And if you're interested in joining us and hearing more from Rosie and a number of other amazing speakers, please check it out and consider registering at bnymelloninsight.com. But without any further ado, let's get right to part one of this two-part episode. Part two will run next week. And as always, listen, rate, review, tell us what you think wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thanks as always for joining us on BNY Mellon Perspectives. Rosie, this is a real treat. Uh, thanks so much for being here with us today. Uh, it's really great to have you. Thank you so much, Robin. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm a big fan of BNY Mellon. I've had a chance to speak at your headquarters before. And anytime that I could do something with you, I always will. Well, we really appreciate that. Um, so, so let me just give a little background for our listeners here. Um, you're the CEO of Red River Associates, uh, and before that served as the 43rd Treasurer of the United States. Um, starting with your time on the transition team in November 2008, you were the longest serving Senate confirmed Treasury official in the Obama administration. You were also on President Biden's trans transition team for Treasury. You've been honored with the Treasury Department's Hamilton Award and as one of USA Today's Women of the Century. You've been a visiting scholar at the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study at Harvard with a focus on millennials and post-millennials. I have three post-millennials, by the way, and I know you have some too. So I'm looking forward to your perspective on them and give me a little coaching as we go through this. Um, but maybe let's start with something topical. Uh, we've just passed President Biden's first 100 days and his first State of the Union. It's clearly been an eventful moment in history for him to take over, and you've had a seat in that transition. And can you give us a little glimpse into that process? I mean, some of the personnel and policy decisions that the team has to grapple with, how that gives us some insight into the future and how we might govern. 
Absolutely. And, and thank you so much for that introduction. I should hire you as my PR agent more than anything. Thank you. Um, yeah, so it was, you know, it's a, such a privilege to serve in the administration, any administration in general, but to have a seat at the table, both during the height of the financial crisis of 2008, both terms of the Obama administration, and now back again for the 2020 Treasury Transition Team, was really eye-opening. It's, it's, it's two totally different set of circumstances, two totally different worlds. Uh, I would say, uh, you know, the, as we all know, the, the crisis of 2008 uh, originated with the housing bubble, access to capital and liquidity was a real issue. And the focus of Treasury at that time was implementing the legislation that Congress had passed in October of 2008, the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act, which led to what we know as a troubled asset relief program. And of course, infusing an enormous amount of capital into financial institutions to, to free up the, the markets. Uh, on the other hand, this transition, again, very, very different. I would say that first one was about housing, mostly. The second one, this one, is about our home. So this is really more about Main Street. This is, you know, the pandemic obviously threw us a, an enormous uh, challenge in terms of thinking about a path forward. Hopefully we'll never see something like this again, but it really is unprecedented. And I would say the issues that we tackled that were priority issues in this particular round of the transition team, it's kind of a, a little bit of a joke on my end that it's everything that starts with a C, basically. So, of course, COVID was a big issue, but we also had other issues that we've never really encountered before, whether it was climate, cyber, crypto, uh, you know, computer modernization, uh, our continuing resolution to think about the budget process, communication slash social media, uh, culture, and of course, I'm going to cheat on this one, the economy. But, uh, you know, those were really kind of top of the list of the challenges that were faced, not just in Treasury, but in the entire, uh, all the all the, all the agencies, period. Uh, so to have, you know, any transition is difficult, but to go from one administration to the other when perhaps all we could access were public documents where it was, was tough, really, really tough. Uh, but I loved it. Uh, and I had a chance to uh, work on a couple of other uh, fun uh, issues, like um, I, I was on the interview team for some, some of the... Um, security positions. I was also part of Secretary Yellen's questions for the record. So there were some things, again, that were that were kind of above and beyond. But uh, I would say to anyone who never, like me, in a million years thought you would ever work for the federal government, you know, here I am taking all these tours of duties, if you will. I loved every second, but it is difficult. But, but, it, but it really kind of, you know, uh, does something to your perspective in terms of moving forward. So you mentioned it's the second time that you've had a direct window into this process. Um, you talked a little bit about this second one. I mean, can I take you back for a second to the first one? Because that was also, as you pointed out, I mean, it's very different than the one today, but the, the height of the financial crisis, I mean, the eyes of the world watching that transition. I mean, just tell us a little bit about that moment uh, as you were sort of in there in some of those rooms. Yeah, well, probably like most of the viewers here, I was actually in the thick of it. So I was managing director of investments for a $22 billion firm based in San Francisco. And as we all saw, it wasn't, you know, didn't start in 2008. It was before that. And, and obviously, and from Wall Street's perspective, it was Bear Stearns, it was Merrill Lynch, it was all these kind of um, signs, very big signals that, that something was wrong. And of course, what happened with Lehman in September, that was a tipping point. And, you know, I think we all remember that, you uh, the scariest part was uh, it seemed like it happened all at once, but it was building. 
And so when it finally tipped, it was, you know, the house was on fire. And uh, Congress couldn't pass that legislation the first time. I think we remember that too. That was in September when they didn't didn't pass the first time. And 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 you know, maybe I'm not supposed to say this, but I, I gotta give Secretary Paulson so much credit here. He was absolutely a big leader in all of this, of course, with Chairman Bernanke and at the time, uh, Tim Geithner, who was the head of the Federal Reserve, uh, president of the New York Federal Reserve. And, and, and together, really, um, you know, give them all the credit in the world, of course, along with Congress and President Bush, to have the foresight to do something, even though it took two times to do it, they, they finally did it. And again, all those components that became known as the Trouble Asset Relief Plan and the biggest one, the Capital Purchase Program, that, again, provided the biggest infusion of capital, uh, really provided, you know, not just resources, but I think what we really needed was a level of certainty because, uh you know, in my firm, uh, it was a real estate investment management firm. And of course, real estate, you know, wasn't doing so well. So again, I felt it. I was living it every day. And fortunately, I think, fortunately in October, in fact, the day before the ESA was passed in Congress, I had closed on a $300 million capital raise when no one was raising money. Kind of a, a miracle, mostly European pension funds. And so at that time, I was uh, slated to take a 14-week a vacation and a friend of mine who was in the uh, Clinton administration, she's the SBA administrator under Clinton, living here in the Bay Area, uh, called me and said that they were looking for finance professionals uh, to come on in to the administration should Obama win in November to help bridge this uh, team between uh, Secretary Paulson and would-be Secretary Geithner. And so, you know, again, at that time, what a decision. My, my daughter was eight. My son was 12. Uh, my whole family is here. My mom, everyone's here. Uh, and again, never in a million years thought I would do that. What I thought was going to be, you know, first again, my 14 week vacation, uh, then again, you know, taking this, this tour of duty, uh, it was a wake up call. It was, it was a big wake up call across the board. And anyone who feels, um, you know, that call, that, that personal call, really a call of duty, uh, to do something in one of the most consequential times of our economic history. I mean, how could you say no? And again, I didn't realize that I would end up being in D.C. for 10 years. Uh, and I moved back here to the Bay Area about three years ago, but uh, when my daughter graduated from high school. But uh, I have zero regrets, zero. And if tomorrow was day one again in 2008, I would do it all over again in a heartbeat. By the way, 14-week vacation, that sounds like a lot of fun. Just out of curiosity, what were you going to be doing? <laughs> Absolutely nothing, probably, or just spending time with my kids. I actually hadn't planned on going anywhere. Just kind of, you know, again, the sky was falling everywhere around us, including in my firm, including in Silicon Valley, including what was happening in general with with, with Wall Street. So, I think I, you know, I just needed a break, and I, it's kind of interesting to think I needed a break, and then jumping on the transition team where we never had a break ever. It was non-stop. And there were two dozen of us on this transition team. And it was basically, you know, all of us in this war room. It's It was the conference room on the uh, west side of Treasury on the, the first floor, basically just this little narrow driveway that separates Treasury from the White House. And it was that entrance, the bell entrance, where President Bush was coming over constantly. And so we were in that first conference room on the right as you enter literally this room full of laptops and every day we would get, you know, a stack of documents to review, sometimes individually, sometimes as teams. So I was also on the international affairs team. 
Um, and, and so, so we would have to turn the stuff around. Sometimes we'd have a week, sometimes we'd have a day, sometimes we'd have an hour. And, and so that level of, of, you know, stress and, um, urgency and, and, you know, your brain just has to rise up. You have no choice but to rise up as these tasks come to you over and over and over again in some different capacity. And again, that was unprecedented too, what was happening in that transition, similar to, similar to again, what was unprecedented in this transition. Uh, and I don't remember a lot of details other than I didn't eat, I didn't sleep, and it was constant, constant, constant on call for the next round. So let, I'd love to come to that theme of the sort of the constant, constant for a second, because just reflecting back on that history and the crises that you were just talking about, those two, I think that gives us an opportunity to explore another of your interests. I mean, you call yourself something of an accidental uh, historian, and of course, we're all living through history in real time, and you've just been talking about it, Rosie, but the millennials and Gen Z have had to come of age in a time of crisis after crisis, as you were talking about it, and beginning with 9-11, then 2008, and now COVID-19. And clearly, this has a pretty profound effect on them and shapes them. And I know you've done quite a lot of work on that. I'd love to get your perspective on that. Yeah, so so you know, now you're speaking my language here. I am obsessed, basically anyone born in the mid-90s on, and, and the reason why I think those generations, which are technically millennials and I'm calling them post-millennials, um, they have seen more in their short little lives than most of us will ever see. So yes, you mentioned 9-11. You know, my son was born in 1996. He was five years old at that time. And, and, and I remember his kind of, one of his, one of his initial memories was, was, uh, as it was happening, I mean, here we are in California, and 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 he runs into the into our bedroom in the morning, and it was just as the second tower was falling down, and and he runs in, looks at the TV, and he says, "Rewind!" Like he thought we were watching some movie, right? Just the saddest thing. So 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 yes, their reality is is unfortunate in many ways, and so yes, there were these series of milestones. Uh, you know, let's talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, so what they've seen in terms of crisis after crisis. So there, you know, there we are with 9-11. And then, of course, um, you know, what, what, what happened, um, uh, you know, with, with, the, with the financial crisis. Of course, my, my kids live that with me, right? Literally take them out of their only, the only school they ever knew, the only bed they ever knew, the only house they ever knew, and, and take them to this foreign land of D.C., um, and then, of course, what they're living now with the pandemic, I, I don't think we will understand the social, political, and economic impacts of this pandemic fully for a while, and especially the emotional impacts on what these kids have experienced, both in not having the interaction, the social interaction, the physical interaction of being in, in school itself, but also what it means, the fear of the unknown that no one can control, right? 9-11, it's not like we really controlled that either. That's a different type of fear. But let's not forget one other constant thread that has come through these kids' lives, unfortunately, which is, you know, school shootings, all too many, you know, um, you know what, 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 what happened with <laughs> too many, way too many to name. And it's not like I want to go into the details of this, but 
the one takeaway that I would say in my two years that I studied millennials and post-millennials is that their anxiety is real. It is very, very real. You add into that thread, you know, what happened in 2007 and 2008 wasn't just the crisis or leading up to the crisis. It was also the advent of the mass scale use of social media. So again, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Our kids are exposed to a very visual world, an uncontrolled world that has a lot of great promise and a lot of great educational uh, components. But there's also, again, this threat to our kids in terms of, you know, what we can and can't do to protect them. Let me make something very clear to all the parents who are watching out there. Our kids have seen everything. And as much as, as, as we want to deny, um, it's true. I mean, you know, the, the world is, has become very, very flat for them geographically by having access to the internet. But at the same time, um, there are too many things, you know, that, that, that we don't like to think about that they have been exposed to. You know, I, I couldn't believe, you know, there are dedicated videos to the jumpers of 9-11, God forbid, or, you know, any other kind of exposure to whether it's, you know, I call it almost like pre-PTSD. It's like when your brain is that young and hasn't formed yet, all the brain synapses are not formed completely, and you're seeing something that could very well be traumatic to anyone, but to for an untrained or un mature mind to see something that for anyone else would be that traumatic. Again, we haven't really understood what the long-term impacts of that's going to be. But at the same time, I don't want to be Debbie Downer here. At the same time, the internet has also provided so many amazing opportunities for these kids where they know so much more than my generation ever will just by, you know, the push of a button. Again, you know, in many cases, the good stuff. So as long as we realize that there's a lot that we, not just as parents, but as a community, as a nation, and as a world need to do to really think about how to find balance for that next generation, because this isn't just about our kids. This is about a future leadership issue, right? And so, um, so I think there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Okay, um, I'd, I'd love to sort of mix it up a little bit and uh, just with a brief interlude, if I can, I mean, I have to ask, I've wanting to ask this since I first met you, I mean, you, you were in charge of the Bureau of Engraving and Printing and the U.S. Mint and Fort Knox. By the way, how cool is that to have that on your resume? You kids must have thought you were a rock star when you went home and told them that. But, <laughs> but, 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 you know, favorite child of those three, piles of cash, stacks of coins or bars of gold? Which one did you have the most fun with? You know, I have never been asked that question. And all of those, all those three entities are very unique for different reasons. So for folks who don't know, the Bureau of Engraving and Printing is where we literally design and print our paper currency. The U.S. Mint is where we produce our coins and medals and commemorative uh, uh, numismatic collectibles. And then Fort Knox, yes is where we keep a good portion of our U.S. gold reserves. Not all of it. Only about 60% is in Fort Knox. And then another 20% in deep storage in Denver, another 20% in New York. But I got to say, let me just talk about Fort Knox for a second, which is technically part of the U.S. Mint. So yes, I was there. Yes, I've seen the gold. And, and, and people probably wouldn't know this, but the U.S. reserves is about 268 million ounces of gold. That's a lot of gold. And so when you go 
through Fort Knox, and very few people are ever allowed in there. It's really, you know, it's a, it's a secure fort, literally. And I know if you're, I'm old enough to remember the, the, the TV series Get Smart, how he has to go through all those doors to access his little area. That's what it's like. You have to go through all these strange little fun doors. And then ready for this, they actually weigh you before you go in so that you're not, you know, running out with a 28-pound brick of gold. But they weigh you before you go in so that you weigh the same when you go out. And it's, the, the, the gold is stored in these kind of metal lockers, actually look like metal closets. And there's a little window on the bottom. And, and, and the locks are audited every year for security purposes. But you can look through that little window. And when you turn on the light, I swear to God, it's like that last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark when they take the top of the Ark of the Covenant and it's this, you know, brilliant shine. That's exactly what it is. It is unreal. And actually, if you ever really want to see our gold reserves, the New York Fed has a public tour. They'll take you down to deep storage where a lot of that is our gold, where we, we store some of our gold. Um, and then I think the New York Fed also has a, a one of our bricks on display in the Denver uh, Mint also has a brick on display, but very, very cool. But I, I do have um, an affinity, a very close affinity for the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, just because that for me is where I would take my breaks during the, 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 the crisis, the financial crisis. And there's this area in there called the Historical Resource Center. And at the, the HRC, people wouldn't realize that Treasury didn't just make money. Treasury produced all the financial products of the entire federal government. So that included uh, postage stamps, savings bonds, military payment certificates. They still produce the security page of your passport. And all those renderings, all that artistry, those concepts, which have many of them have never been seen by anything, anyone living today. They're literally in the, in the historical resource center. And so to have access to that when I needed that break and I would go in there and I just kind of go through and look at all these fabulous Fabulous works of art. I mean, I came across a, a little uh, series of sketches of the, the the World's Fair postage stamp. I think from 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 the late '30s, and it was it was is the early iterations. And and there was some pencil chicken scratch in one of the margins that said uh, it was a three cent stamp. It said that the three is too large. And then there's another iteration that said still too large interferes with the water feature. And then the last iteration, ready for this, said. Okay, ready? FDR. I mean, it was his, it was his chicken scratch that I'm coming across on approving a postage stamp design. Crazy. That's awesome. Right? That's awesome. Amazing. All kinds of great things in there. It was fun. I loved it. Thanks for listening to part one. And remember that part two of this two-part conversation between Robin Vince and Rosie Rios will run next week. They'll discuss representation on currency leadership and the future of industries. It's a wide ranging conversation. We hope you enjoyed part one. And as always, listen, rate, review, tell us what you think wherever you listen to your podcasts. And thanks as always for joining us on BNY Mellon Perspectives. Perspectives.